Sometimes the most seemingly insignificant flaws can lead to the most catastrophic failures. And on January 28, 1986, seven individuals woke up and got dressed for what they would have expected to be probably the most memorable and unforgettable day of their lives. And these seven individuals, uh, including astronauts and, and even a school teacher, got on the Space Shuttle Challenger. And 73 seconds after liftoff, the Space Shuttle broke apart. First, they started to see smoke coming from one of the fuel tanks, and it started to spin. They had to detonate the blasters, and the capsule crashed into the sea, and all seven individuals died. Later, when they investigated what went wrong, it wasn't any huge system. It wasn't any computer. This flaw was nothing more than a rubber O-ring, a tiny piece of rubber meant to hold a seal together. And what had happened that day was the temperature was too cold, and so the O-ring couldn't expand. This caused a fuel leak as the fuel got past the O-ring into a larger tank and caused an explosion, and all people died. But actually, not all died. Some survived, but they couldn't eject because NASA had actually decided to remove the ejection equipment from this space shuttle. They thought their shuttle was so safe, we actually don't need the ejection equipment. And so these people couldn't even eject, and they died on landing. What makes this even more tragic isn't that the people died and isn't that it was as something as insignificant as an O-ring that caused this, but actually the fact that the NASA engineers had been warned. They'd been warned that morning, and they disregarded it, and they were told, it's too cold, this increases the chances of failure, and they, they thought the wrong way about the statistics, and they disregarded that warning. And to make it even worse, for nine years, since 1977, the NASA engineers had been warned that these little tiny rubber O-rings were not up to the job, and that they needed to be improved. But they disregarded those warnings, and it led to the loss of seven lives. And sin can be like that O-ring. Sometimes a small sin can have massive consequences. Left unchecked, it can diminish our joy, it can reduce our fruitfulness, it can destroy our relationships, it can, re- and we can, it can take away our eternal reward, and left totally unchecked, it can show that we're not even saved. So I want to talk today about one of these sins that seems small, seems insignificant, that we're often warned about, that we often disregard, but can have massive, even catastrophic effects on our life. And that is the sin of discontent. So what is discontent? To talk about first, what is it? Discontent is a sadness, or a lack of peace and joy, negativity, or even anger about what you don't have. Discontent. It manifests in complaining, 
or grumbling. It can turn outward into envy, and that's uh, wanting excessively now what somebody else has. It can get even worse into jealousy, where we now don't like the people who have what we want. And as we know, biblically, jealousy and envy can turn into all sorts of different sins that, uh, that uh, can destroy our lives. So I want to talk today about the sin of discontent, and I want to give you seven reasons to fight discontent. Uh, seven reasons to fight discontent as if you knew that this was the rubber O-ring in your life that could cause everything to come crashing down. So first... The first reason to fight discontent is that discontent is insane. Discontent is insane. Einstein is quoted as saying that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So how does that make discontent insane? Proverbs 27 verse 20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And never satisfied are the eyes of man. So discontent is insane because discontent doesn't realize that it can never be satisfied by getting what it wants. And we are insane when we go through life from one thing to the next, thinking that the next thing will finally make us happy when it won't. One of the richest men that's ever lived, John Rockefeller, He had $1 billion in 1916. At the time, that was 1.5% of the entire GDP of the U.S., which, looking at it that way, would make his wealth today $340 billion. That's money that makes Elon Musk look poor. And when he was asked, how much money is enough? His answer was, just a little bit more. And he still wasn't happy. But it can be anything. The cause of our discontent can be money. It can be power, friendships, wealth. It can be beauty. I read recently about one actress who she said, a very beautiful woman, and she said, there's never a point in my life where I have loved my body. Never, ever. People who have more than we could ever imagine that still aren't happy. And then we somehow think, well, if I had more, I'd be happy. Discontent is insane. And we don't just see that from modern examples. Solomon himself tells us that discontent is insane and that gathering more and more will never satisfy. Ecclesiastes 5.10, he says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. In Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 9, specifically verses 1 and 2, he says, There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, verse 7 says, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And even before Solomon, Adam and Eve in the garden had everything except for one tree. The Lord God commanded them and said, you may eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And they sinned. And and even that wasn't enough for them. And they gave into discontent. So the first reason to fight discontent with everything that we have is because it is insane. So my question for us to start off is, what is the one thing in your life, in your heart, 
that you think will finally make you happy? Because it's different for all of us for different reasons and in different points of life. Or what is the thing that you think having more of it would make you happy? Second, the second reason to fight discontent is that discontent is faithless. At the root of all discontent is disbelief. In various ways, discontent is doubting God. First, it's doubting God's wisdom. Romans 8.28 tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And when we're discontent, we, we doubt that God is actually using every single thing for our good. And those verses continue. We often separate 28 from 29 and 30. It continues, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And every single moment of our lives has been perfectly orchestrated by God to bring us to him, save us, make us more like his son who himself suffered, and then to be glorified with his son. And when we are discontent, we're doubting that whatever is happening right now is actually the thing that will give me most joy. Second, it doubts God's goodness. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he's made. And verse 17 says that the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. And this means that all of God's works to all people at all time are perfectly good, perfectly righteous. And so maybe we don't doubt that God's sovereign, but we then that means we're doubting that he's good. So f- discontent is disbelieving God's wisdom, and it's doubting God's goodness. But third, and perhaps most foolish, it's doubting God's reward. So discontent is doubting God's reward. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And and notice that the thing actually preparing that weight of glory is the affliction. And it's the affliction itself which, embraced rightly, is giving and bringing that eternal reward. But when we're discontent, we doubt that. And Matthew 19, 29 and 30 says that everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and last first. And when we doubt that, we're doubting God's reward. We're doubting that many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And a lot of times what at least can make me discontent is thinking about the ways I could be more effective if I had more of this or if I had more of that. But if this verse from Matthew 19 is true, then the only thing limiting our eternal fruitfulness and our eternal reward is our own pride and our own unwillingness to die to self and be humbled. Because there's, there's no amount of giftedness that prevents us from serving the least. There's no amount of, of wealth we don't have that prevents us from being humbled and lowering ourselves like Christ. 
So when we are discontent, we're doubting God's wisdom, we're doubting his goodness, we're doubting his reward. We're like children that their parents wake them up early on a Saturday morning, get them into the car, start driving, and the whole drive they're complaining. It's a long drive, it's uncomfortable, my brother stinks, I couldn't sleep in today, I wanted to watch cartoons, maybe some of you that's still you, some days that's me. And finally, we realized actually it was a surprise trip to Disneyland that our parents had planned for us. So discontent is faithless. And our question for that is, what are the things in your life, in my life, or what are the things that are not in your life that cause you to doubt God? So discontent is insane Discontent is also faithless. But third, obviously, discontent is sinful. But we often uh, overlook this, or we, we want to forget this. There was a book maybe uh, two decades ago called Respectable Sins. It was about all of the things that are sins that we've determined aren't actually a big deal. And yes, it's a sin, but it's a respectable sin. Yes, it's a, it's a part, but it's just an O-ring. So it doesn't really matter. But we want to remember that Discontent is actually sin. First, discontent is sin in itself. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 17, which is the last commandment, the tenth, tenth commandment, says, You shall not covet, which is you shall not desire inordinately things that are not yours, which comes from discontent. You shall not covet, whether it's your neighbor's house, his wife, his servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. So just right there, discontent is sin. But you may wonder, why does this commandment come last? Why, why does he end with discontent? Why, we already covered murder, adultery. Why now closing it with discontent? Well, notice the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me in verse 3, which is idolatry. The last commandment, you shall not covet, is discontent and covetousness. And these two commandments, the first and the last, idolatry and coveting, One, coveting comes from idolatry, and coveting and idolatry lead to every sin in between. So if we're seeing discontent, that means we have become idolatrous, and it will lead to all of these sins in between. And James explains us to that. In James 1, 14 and 15, he says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So discontent isn't just sin, but discontent will inevitably lead to many other sins. It will lead to grumbling. It will lead to perhaps even stealing. It will lead to talking bad about the people we don't like, the people who have what we don't want. It can even lead to murder and worse. But most importantly, discontent is sinful, and that means that this will be punished. God has said that he will punish every sin, either now or in eternity. Every sin will be punished, including the sin of discontent. And Paul, in Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6, says, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or, notice this, 
or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So discontent is sin. It, it will be punished. It will lead to other sins and ultimately unchecked, unreined in and embraced discontent will show that we are not inheriting the kingdom of heaven. And for this reason, this is one of the sins that God is actually going to destroy the world for. So realize that discontent is a sin, and it may be a respectable sin, but no sins are respectable. Uh, Even the smallest gasket can lead to complete destruction. And it was this sin of discontent and grumbling that caused the Israelites stumbling in the wilderness and dying in the wilderness instead of entering into the promised land. So do you realize that discontent in all of its expressions is sin, and that totally unrepented of discontent will lead to hell? Fourth, fight discontent with everything you have because discontent is destructive. First, discontent will destroy yourself. Discontent will steal your joy, which the joy of the Lord is our strength. Discontent will lead to bitterness. It will quench the spirit who empowers you. It will cause you to spiritually wither. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. First Timothy 6, 9 and 10, Paul says, but those who desire to be rich, which in, in that context was more than just money, it was, it was social status. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So discontent will destroy yourself. It will ruin your joy. It will steal your strength. It will take away all of your your motivation to serve. And again, ultimately, as Hebrews 3 warns us, it will cause us unchecked to fall away from God. Hebrews 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And this comes right after the book of Hebrews is talking about the Israelites who grumbled and fell in the wilderness. Secondly, Discontent will destroy your friendships. First, nobody likes being around it as much as we like to give in to it. Nobody likes to be around a continually grumbling, complaining, discontent person. No matter how good the coffee was, they're like, eh, didn't, it had a bad aftertaste. But also discontent spreads, and discontent will spread in a group from one to another until you have an entire group of just angry, bitter, discontented people. And third, it will lead to conflict. Discontent unchecked will cause envy and sin that will destroy your friendships. Galatians 5, 19 through 21 talks about this, especially verse 20. 
talks about the works of the flesh, and Paul describes it as idolatry, and we hear that again. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, all of these spring from discontent, and all of them will destroy your friendships. But third, consider how discontent will destroy your family. Joyless discontent will never win over a family member. And nothing will push your children away from the Lord more than them seeing that the Lord wasn't enough to make them happy. So when you're tempted to give in to discontent, even think of your descendants and your family and the legacy you can leave them, whether or not you're going to be content and show them that, that Christ is enough. So discontent is destructive. It will destroy yourself, your friendships, your family. And what else can be the outcome of such insane behavior as discontent, as thinking that more and more and one more thing will make you happy. Fifth, discontent is satanic. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, describes Satan's fall from heaven. Satan was the first discontented soul. And Isaiah 14 says, how you are fallen from heaven... O day star, son of the dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And then Ezekiel 28, 12 through 19, but especially verse 17 gives us another account. It says, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So I cast you to the ground. And even Satan, in spite of all that he had in heaven, being an angel, being made so beautiful and, and, and honored, it wasn't enough. And he was discontented and wanted to even be like God himself. Idolatry simply wanting to be God instead of worshiping God. So discontent is satanic. Satan was the first discontented soul. But second, Satan introduced discontent into the world. Genesis 3, 1 through 5 talks about how Adam and Eve now were in Eden in a perfect paradise with everything that they could want except for one tree and it says, the serpent now cast to the ground is more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he stirred up discontent in their hearts, not reminding them, hey, actually, you have every tree you can want except for that one. But instead saying, wait, you guys don't get any tree, right? Oh, wait, no. You, oh, you can't have that one? Well, that one's the best one. God doesn't want you to have that one. He knows that one's so good. He wants it all for himself. And he caused them to doubt God's word, his wisdom, his goodness, and they ate. But even now, still today, discontent is satanic and demonic. And James 3, 14 through 16, tells us that discontent in all of its expressions comes from Satan and his demons. And it says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So we want to fight discontent because discontent is insane, it's faithless, it's sinful, it's destructive, and it's even satanic. It may be an O-ring, but it's an O-ring that will destroy our lives. It's an O-ring that left unchecked will cause us spiritually to die. And so if you're a believer here today, remember that sin has consequences. We're forgiven, but sin still has consequences. And even small sins like discontent have consequences. It can destroy ourselves, our friendships, our jobs, our future opportunities, our family. And left unchecked, it can cause us slowly to harden and grow bitter and fall away from Christ, even entirely, as Hebrews 3.12 warns us. But to any unbelievers who are here tonight, know that Discontent is a primary mark of an unsaved heart, a heart that refuses to give thanks to God or honor him as God. Now, to be clear, this is not uh, just somebody who, who uh, like all of us, is struggling with discontent when things are hard or just any time of life, but when it's unchecked and when it's embraced, discontent is the sign of an unregenerate heart. And yet look at the God that you're rebelling from, the good God who created everything. So we call you to turn today and and run to him. Repent of your your discontent, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, and turn to Christ. So we've seen the severity, the need to fight discontent and even to repent of discontent. But the question you should ask yourself is how? How do we truly repent of discontent? How do we actually change and turn with something so subtle and even something so central, something so uncontrollable? It's it's easy to stop doing external things. It's easy to say the right things. How do we repent in that we can actually even feel the right thing and, and actually delight in God and actually let go of the sadness or the, the grumbling when we, when we want that thing or when the situation actually is hard. Our final two reasons tell us how. The sixth reason to fight discontent is because discontent is forgiven. Christ came to earth and was perfect where we failed. We read a moment ago of Adam being tempted in the garden. And when Christ began his ministry, he was led into the wilderness. And whereas Adam had every food he could want, save one fruit, Christ had no food or water for 40 days. And after 40 days of fasting, Matthew 4 verse 2 says he was hungry. And the tempter, that's again, Satan, the serpent, came and said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And three times Satan tempted Jesus and at no point 
did he give in. At no point did he, did he sin. At no point did he even have discontent. He was the son of God. He deserved everything. And yet he abstained, trusting the father's providence. And Christ was perfect where we failed. He started his ministry that way. And throughout his ministry, at no point in any moment of his life, did he ever grumble. At no point was Christ ever discontent. At no point when he was mocked, when he was rejected, when those over whom he was rightfully the king didn't follow him, when those he came to die for rejected him, when those he was dying for were mocking him, at no point did he grumble. At no point did he say, I deserve better. Even on the cross, as he was dying for our discontent. And he died. He died taking our guilt, taking our sin, paying the price of our discontent, and taking our destruction upon himself. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here's what's even so amazing. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was suffering. He was wronged. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And we are forgiven of our discontent in Christ. We are forgiven because the perfect one who never gave in to discontent for a moment died for us and took our punishment, but also he gave his perfect faithfulness to us in place of our faithlessness. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he made him, that's God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, who never sinned, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So our discontent has been forgiven, and he has given us his perfect obedience, his faithfulness, his never once grumbling in any moment, at any moment. So know that we can't remove our guilt. We saw a moment that we have to repent of our, of our discontent, but we can't remove that guilt. Even our repenting cannot remove the guilt of our discontent. We have to go to him. And is there anything that can more quickly solve our discontent, can melt our grumbling, can remove our envy than seeing what we've been forgiven, that we deserve discontent is satanic. We deserve to be in hell for all of eternity with Satan. And yet we've been forgiven because Christ died in our place who never had a moment of discontent. So when struggling with discontent, remember your forgiveness and remember that discontent is one of the sins that Christ died for and run to him when you're discontent for cleansing and grace. Seventh, lastly, Fight discontent because discontent is unnecessary. Discontent is unnecessary. What I mean is discontent is not just forgiven, 
but it's unnecessary. We who have turned to Christ have been set free from our sin, and we no longer are a slave to it. This is because first, Christ didn't just die for our sins, but he rose from the dead. And when we believe in him, not only are our sins given to him, but we are joined to him and we rise with him. And now we're strengthened by him as he lives through us. And that frees us. We are joined and joined to and strengthened by the one who never failed. Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul, the apostle in prison for obedience, totally joyful and content says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we can also translate that as I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And we can do it through him who strengthens us because we are in him who gives us his strength who never fail. So first, it's unnecessary because we are, are joined to and strengthened by the one who never sinned and never gave into discontent for even a moment. Second, discontent is unnecessary because we have his example and his mind. Philippians 2, 5 through 9, continuing in Philippians, Paul says, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Um, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we have Christ's example. And when you're struggling with discontent, remember to look to Christ and see his example. And by the Holy Spirit that is in you, by being joined to him, ask for his mind to see things his way. Third, discontent is unnecessary because we have the promise of his help. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. The Hebrews, as you know, were uh, suffering. They were persecuted. They had lost a lot of their wealth. They were tempted to discontent. They were tempted to turn back and turn away from Christ and return to Judaism. And the writer of Hebrews is exhorting them to continue. And he says, hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So discontent is not just forgiven, but discontent is unnecessary. We've been freed from this. We don't have to give in to this insanity anymore. We've been joined to Christ and we're empowered by him. We have his example and his mindset, and we have his promises of help. So cling to him, think of him, and go to him whenever you're tempted or struggling with discontent. So we've seen that, that discontent, is, it's insane. It's never satisfied. It's faithless. It doubts all of God's promises and goodness. 
It's sinful, it's destructive, it's satanic, but it's forgiven for all who turn to Christ. He takes our discontent, all of it, and he paid the price for it, and now it's unnecessary. But the final reason that we don't need to be discontent, and the final reason that discontent is so foolish is because we have him himself. He is our ultimate reward, and he died for us to bring us to himself, that those who sinned from him, sinned against him in the garden, will be reunited with him in a new garden, in a new heavens, and a new earth. He is the most glorious, the most lovely, the most good, the most holy being. He is the only solution for our insanity. Augustine, an early Christian writer, said, our hearts were made for him. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. He is the only solution for our discontent. He is the only thing that can satisfy our hearts. Every other thing will leave us discontent. As you guys know, uh, Tim Keller passed away today, and he'd been ill for a few years. And I wanted to bring him in a closing example of a phenomenal picture of contentment in suffering. He came uh, down with cancer uh, a couple of years ago, I think, and it had been really lingering and, and going on, but recently it progressed. And he, he said recently, knowing you are really going to die, not knowing it hypothetically, but knowing you are really going to die, changes the way you look at your time, changes the way you think about everything. At that moment, you really are going to either be with Satan and all of hell's malcontents for all of eternity or be with Christ forever. He, he, going on, he says, everything changes when you actually realize time is limited and I am mortal. Last night, this is a, what he said to family. Knowing that the time was very short, he said, I am thankful for the time God has given me, but I am ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus send me home. And what a way to go. As ugly as discontent can be, is there anything more beautiful, more compelling than full contentment in Christ even in the greatest suffering and the greatest sorrow. So above all, we fight discontent by having this heart until finally we will be with the one who will remove all discontent forever. Psalm 24 verse 7 says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let's pray. Lord, we we are aware of our sinfulness. We are aware of our our discontentedness and all of the ways it expresses itself. And we we cast it upon you. We ask for your, your cleansing. We thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you that we will be with you Help us to live with this mindset of of desiring you, of looking singularly to you, uh, and, and just always glorifying you by our contented joy in you. 
Help us to do this, Lord. We can only do this by your Holy Spirit. It is supernatural. It is impossible in our flesh. But by your Spirit in us, being joined to you, uh, we can. We ask for that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.